We're going to be in Habakkuk, the kind of end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, I'll read from chapter 1, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that peoples labour merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? 
a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Uh, we've obviously got quite a lot to get through this morning, and um, it'd be great to keep that open in front of you. Uh, we're going to spend uh, quite a lot of time in bits of it, scoot over other bits of it. Hopefully we'll get to the end in not too long. Uh, but let me pray, because uh, we all need God's help this morning, don't we? Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have eyes to see this morning, that we would have ears to hear the truth of your promise in your word. Help each of us to trust in you, uh, to put our faith in you. Be with us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Last week, if you were here last week, we began uh, by imagining ourselves in the English Channel. It was 1939, uh, we were on our way to France, to to World War II, uh, but there was a big storm. We were in a small boat and there was a big storm, and that storm... If you remember for us, that was a picture of the mess, uh, the mess of the world around us, uh, and being honest with ourselves, the mess of our own lives, the mess in our hearts. Uh, This week, I want you to imagine, I guess, uh, quite a similar picture. It's now six years later, so 1945, uh, and it's D-Day. This time, the crossing to France was relatively smooth. But now you can imagine yourself, you've come off the boat, you're wading waist deep through the water. Uh, The waves feel far more intense now that you're out of the boat, but that's nothing compared to the the gunfire and the shells dropping all around you. Can you imagine the the sort of the whistles and the screams? It's, It's a mess. Last week, we thought about the mess of the storm on that very first crossing to France. And if we're honest, the the truth is that in life, mess isn't just one moment like that, one storm. In fact, as we journey through life, we encounter mess after mess. We have all these questions of God. I think the injustice seems to get sharper, the trauma more painful. Aren't we asking, where is God in all of this? How are we supposed to have faith in the mess? a reminder of where we are in the history of the Bible here. Uh, Habakkuk is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, The northern kingdom of Israel has already been conquered. They've been taken off into exile. And in the south, things have been starting to get increasingly evil. For that kind of hundred year period from Israel getting taken into exile up to Habakkuk being written, bad king has followed bad king. And Habakkuk has probably just experienced something of of a revival under this good king Josiah. But now, under Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, a return to evil days. You don't need to remember any of those names. Uh, Just remember, uh, Habakkuk has been struggling under evil kings. There's been a revival, and there's an evil king again. And in that context, Habakkuk cries out to God. He is, if you like, a, a faithful prophet in the mess of an evil nation. Last week, we saw he cried out to God, knowing that God is a God of justice, He cried out with this super honest question, how long? How long until you come and do something about the injustice going on amongst your people, God? And we saw that God responded with this 
promise of a surprising uh, promise of justice. He promised in chapter one that he would raise up the Babylonian empire to bring that justice. The Babylonian, the, the violent and evil empire next door. Which obviously begs the question, and we'll see, we've just read, that's the question that Habakkuk asks this week. How can you let the guilty people of Babylon get away with the judgment of your people? Last week, we thought about the surprising justice of the cross, where the victory, the victory over sin and death really was won. And yet, for us, living on this side of the cross as we do, we still have that question, don't we? Of God, what are you going to do about all the mess in the world in which we live? It's now a, a week or so after D Day. Uh, the war has been won on the beaches, but the war definitely isn't over. In fact, you're still fighting battles. You know that some of your friends probably won't make it. The war's been won, but it's definitely still a mess. The world we live in feels a bit like that, I, I think. For, for the Christian, we know, don't we, we're so often told Jesus is victorious. The victory is won. Justice has been achieved. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, that's the message. The message is that Jesus is the one who brings justice, that his death on the cross is what did it, where he defeated evil, where he cried, it is finished. He rose again and defeated death. That's the message. That's the big justice moment. And yet... This side of the cross, we look around us and the world is still a mess, isn't it? There is injustice everywhere. We thought last week about how we contribute to that mess. And how faith in Jesus, faith in that big justice moment is so important for us. Because that was a just God making a way to justify his people, paying the price on their behalf, clothing them in his righteousness, removing their guilt those that have faith in him. But we've got to say that really that's just the start. Because ultimately, even if we trust in that promise, just like Habakkuk, on this side of the promise, aren't we left with this question, what are you going to do about the mess of the world that we live in? And so again, this week, we're going to ask that question. With Habakkuk, we're going to ask that honest question. And this time, we'll see that the promise from God is a promise of complete justice. So let's dive in with this honest question. And Habakkuk begins, a bit like, a bit like last week, and with an acknowledgement of who God is. In chapter 1, verse 12, uh, have a look at chapter 1, verse 12, see what Habakkuk says. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall never die. Uh, see the titles that Habakkuk uses to address God here? Uh, again, he uses Lord in capital letters like that. That's a title we saw last week. It's the name of God, Yahweh. It's the word used when speaking specifically about the God of Israel. It's the name that he revealed to, to Moses. And it means essentially the one who was and who is and whoever will be. And so comes the appropriate question next in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? This is who you've told us that you are. This is who you are. And then he says, you are my holy one. I actually think Habakkuk does something incredibly profound there. 
because not only does he describe God as holy, which he is, it's just to say he's so utterly perfect that he's quite unlike anything in the created world. In fact, his holiness is so complete that to be unholy in his presence is impossible. It's a death sentence. And yet, Habakkuk says, he is mine, my God. It is incredibly profound that the God of Israel is both holy and personal to his people. And it is because of this that Habakkuk can confidently say, still in verse 12, we will never die. Habakkuk's theology is really good. He knows who God is, that God is eternal and that he is holy. But he also knows that those who are his, that those who belong to God, will live forever with him. His theology is really good. And not only does he know God, he accepts that God's surprising promise of justice that we heard last week in chapter one, he accepts that that surprising promise of justice is true. See what he says next. O Lord, you have ordained them as a punishment or as a judgment, and you, my rock, have established them for reproof. He uses another title for God there, my rock. In other words, the place I go to seek refuge. You send the Babylonians to do justice in this place, and I will flee to you, my strong foundation. He knows who this God is, and he accepts that this is what he said he will do. This is what faith looks like in the mess. He's trusting that D-Day really was the victory. And as we keep reading, Habakkuk continues to illustrate that really good theology. He knows what God is like in verse 13. Have a look at verse 13. You who are uh, of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And so he asks his honest question. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You've got to say that's a good question, right? Really the question we were left with last week. God says he's going to raise up the Babylonians to bring his justice. But then in verse 11 of chapter 1, if you remember, he describes the Babylonians as guilty. Babylonians are guilty. If God is uh, too pure to look on evil if he cannot tolerate wrongdoing, then how can he possibly allow them to get away with it? Aren't we asking that question? Don't we ask that question today? It's an obvious example if we stick with the World War II theme. It's true, I don't know if you know this, that Joseph Stalin died in his bed. That the man responsible for more deaths in the deadliest century in human history than any other, and he died at home in his bed, comfortable. He never faced the justice of a human court. How can we say then that the cross of Jesus brings justice if our world is still like this? How could God possibly have allowed him to get away with it? Maybe that's a question that you have. It's really got to be a question that we're all asking. How can this God, knowing what this God is like, how can he possibly allow such evil? I guess for some of us in the room, this might be a deeply personal question. If you've been abused or betrayed or wronged, if you've faced significant discrimination, if you've experienced the sharp end of the messy world in which we live, I'm sure you're asking this question with Habakkuk, aren't you? How can they possibly be allowed to get away with it? 
I'm not going to promise that you'll come away this morning absolutely satisfied with the answer to that question. But do stay tuned because I think that there is real hope here in God's word. Before we get there, see in verse 14. In verse 14, Habakkuk begins to lay out the charge against Babylon. See what he says. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And here Habakkuk is speaking about the the nations that Babylon is going to conquer, probably especially with his own nation, Judah, in view. Remember, Judah has this useless and evil king at home. It's as though the people have no ruler at all. And so their violence and their uh, wickedness are left to run wild. Then in verse 15, Habakkuk says, this is what the Babylonians are like. It's just as you say, God, this is what is coming. If we are the fish, then they come with their hooks and their nets and their dragnets to carry us off into exile, just like we've seen happen to our brothers in the north. It's a stark image, that. But it's a real image. You know, there are actually drawings of the Babylonians. I think you can see them in the British Museum carrying off their captives in nets or with big hooks through their noses and their cheeks. These really are the things that Habakkuk is describing here, the tools of Babylonian war. And here's the issue for Habakkuk in verse 16. He sacrifices, he, that is the Babylonian, sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. He says, these people that you're raising up, God, they they want nothing to do with you. In fact, they'd rather worship their tools of war. They turn their military power into their God. And in doing so, in the rest of verse 16, they live in luxury. They enjoy the richest food. They are utterly evil, and yet they are materially prosperous. I think it's worth us looking in the mirror briefly here. And confessing that despite the prosperous years that our nation has experienced, there are ways in which we have contributed and continue to contribute to the injustice of this world as a nation. And actually, even more than that, just individually in our relative prosperity compared to the world, even as we think about where we buy things from, I think we can ask, are the producers and farmers and creatives getting paid fairly for the goods that we use? Are the people that are making our clothes being treated with justice? As we look in the mirror, as we ask these questions, I think it just becomes increasingly obvious the more we think about it. Doesn't it become increasingly obvious that there are ways that we contribute to the injustice of this world? Not necessarily meaning to, and very often without even thinking about it. But also, as like Habakkuk does here, as we look out of the window, I think this has to be a question that we have, the injustice of the world. I'm sure that when he rests his head tonight, Vladimir Putin will rest it on the very best pillow with the very best silk sheets. It remains true that those who seem to cause the most injustice in this world are also very often those living the most luxurious lives. And so we ask, along with Habakkuk in verse 17, have a look in verse 17, is he, is the Babylonian, to keep on emptying his net forever and mercilessly killing nations forever? That's the question, isn't it? So it's actually a very similar question to the one that we saw last week. 
last week, how long are you going to let this go on? In chapter one, that was the injustice at home. Uh, Here it becomes universal. How long will you let the injustice in the world continue? And so with Habakkuk in verse one of chapter two, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, I will wait. I have offered my question and now I will wait to see how God will respond. Imagine again being uh, in the army, World War II. D-Day has happened. And every day from the moment that D-Day happens, you know that the war is won. What are you waiting for? You're waiting, aren't you, for the announcement that war is over, that it is finished. That's what Habakkuk is waiting for here. Justice, complete justice to be done. And just before we move on to that promise, I think it's worth us reflecting on the honest question uh, that Habakkuk has asked and to think about how Habakkuk asks it. As we come to God with our questions, notice that Habakkuk doesn't doubt who God is. He doesn't deny who God has revealed himself to be. And so would we, as best as we know how, speak to God as he has revealed himself to us in his word, as both the everlasting God of judgment and also as my God, our God, the the personal God. I think that is what faith in the mess looks like. When we pray, how often do we fall into one of these two traps? Either seeing God as as so distant, so holy, so other, so beyond us, that in our reverence of him, we forget to enjoy our relationship with him. Christians, we can pray with Habakkuk, my God. And we can know that he is with us, that because of what he has done for us in Christ, Though he is utterly holy and totally beyond us, he is nevertheless our friend. But on the other side of the coin, there is another trap, isn't there? When we pray to God as though he is not holy, as though he is not really eternal, as though he were nothing but our best friend who doesn't want us to change, who is not looking for repentance. We have got to see that our God is both way bigger than we could possibly imagine and way more familiar than we could possibly hope. Notice too how Habakkuk humbly and honestly asks his question and then waits. He waits for God to speak. You know, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us not to ask our questions. In fact, the more you ask your tricky questions, the more I think your faith will grow. As we go to God with our questions, then are we prepared for him to speak to us? That probably won't mean an audible voice. It might not even mean a a supernatural sense of clarity revealed out of nowhere. And yet God has spoken and he does speak to us through his word today. And so as we pray and as we approach God with our honest questions, especially questions about justice this morning, Will we be prepared to patiently study his words and hear what he has to say to us? Indeed, we see here in Habakkuk how God would respond to exactly this sort of question. Last week, a surprising promise of justice. This week, a complete promise of complete justice. Notice chapter 2, verse 2. 
the Lord replies. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. God is saying that these words that I'm speaking are to be permanent, written down, and that he who reads it is literally a a herald. These words are to be shared. They are for all to hear. And I think at this point, we've got to understand that this is why this book was written. Because this complete promise, it doesn't just apply to Habakkuk's questions about Judah. It doesn't just apply to Babylon. It doesn't just apply to the 7th century BC. Something much bigger is happening here because God's word speaks today. Indeed, as we read on in verse 3, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. In other words, this complete justice is ultimately a justice that will not come until the very end of the world. When the curtains are closed and the show is over, when the message comes over the wireless, the war in Europe is over. It may seem slow in the coming. Remember Habakkuk prays in chapter 1, how long? But God responds here, still in verse 3, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come It will not delay. It may feel as though it's never going to come, that justice. But a thousand years is like a day for the eternal Lord of the universe. And the promise here is that it will come. And that when it does, it will be swift. I guess we're asking what exactly will that justice look like? What does God's justice do? Well, read on with me. In verses 4 and 5, we get another picture of the Babylonian from God's perspective now. Uh, He is puffed up, arrogant, uh, as greedy, as wide as as Sheol, the the grave. He gathers to himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. It's a picture of the Babylonian. But as we dig into these verses, I think we'll see, isn't this just a picture of humanity? I mean, look look at it. Humanity whose soul or desires are not upright. Humanity who is never at rest. Humanity who is never satisfied. In other words, I think living as though God does not exist and so indulging all our own desires and yet in doing so never finding rest for our souls, never finding true satisfaction, utterly self-reliant and self-indulgent. Isn't that what we're like? And so what will God's justice do? Well, before we get there, have a look at this wonderful promise. There's this but at the end of verse four. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. That is God's faithfulness. There is another way. The promise is that we do not need to be self-reliant, that we can instead rely on God, trust in him, be faithful to him and be found to be righteous in him. Such an important concept for the Christian gospel, uh, so much so that that is actually often picked up and quoted by the writers of the New Testament. If none of Habakkuk is uh, familiar to you, I'm sure this is, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's really what we saw last week, right? That's the surprising promise. As we look to Jesus, who lived a perfectly righteous life in our place, who took the justice of the world on his shoulders so that by faith, His righteousness might be freely given to us. Again, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, that is the message right at the heart of what we believe as Christians. 
And it's in the context of that surprising promise that we read these woes that follow. Uh, This is where we're going to speed up quite a lot. But if you just scan your eye over the rest of chapter two, that's what we get here. There are five woes. I see that repeated refrain that it's at the beginning of each paragraph. Uh, Then again at the beginning of verse 19. Woe to him. In other words, judgment is coming to him. Why? Uh, Well, as I say, we don't have time to unpack each of these in detail, but see what God's justice looks like. Just track with me. We'll rush through them. Uh, The first is there in verses six and seven. So in verses six and seven, uh, the Babylonian heaps up what is not his own. God says that he takes things that don't belong to him. That's theft. And the judgment in verse eight, the peoples shall plunder you. Second is similar. Uh, Empire building through injustice. See in verse nine, he gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. He's amassing wealth. And the picture here, it's like he's a killer magpie and not just pinching the shiny necklace and carrying it off to the safety of his nest, but also pecking the wearer to death. And the judgment for for the Babylonian in verse 10 is shame for his house and ultimately death. Uh, The third woe begins to focus more sharply on the violence. See in verse 12, it is the bloodshed of empire building, building a town with blood. And so comes the judgment for that in verse 13. As they bring destruction, so will they be destroyed. Uh, They will be literally there. They will be fuel for the fire themselves. Then I think the image becomes more personal in the fourth woe. The charge there is degrading their enemies. I see in verse 15, it's like an ancient date rape drug. He he gets them drunk and gazes upon their nakedness. That is a horrific abuse. The judgment in verse 16, he will be filled with shame. It is his turn to be filled with wine and to be exposed. And then the fifth and final woe, which is the climax of it all, is idolatry. Putting man-made things, images and carvings, putting them in the place of God, We're in verses 18 to 20 and saying to them, awake, arise. In other words, come to life, which of course they can't for there is no breath in them. The Lord, on the other hand, in verse 20, right at the end of chapter two, the Lord is in his holy temple. Be silent before him. Why? Because unlike the idols, he does have life and he will speak. And his judgment will come. So those are the five woes proclaimed against Babylon. And as we read them, what does that justice look like? What does God's justice do? Well, two key key things for us to see as we put all of those together. First notice, God's justice really is just. The punishment fits the crime. As the Babylonian plunders, so will he be plundered. As he builds a house, his house will be put to shame. As he brings destruction, he will be destroyed. As he shames his enemies, he will be shamed. And ultimately, as he glorifies idols, God will be seen to be glorious. God's justice is just. Notice that it is not the one who has been wronged who executes that justice. God is the judge and he brings the justice himself. By his own means. God's justice is just. 
Secondly, God's complete justice is ultimately eternal. I see back in verse 3, it speaks of the end. This is not just a promise to Habakkuk, Habakkuk that the Babylonian will not be spared God's judgment. I take it that is why, why it's to be written down. So that we see in verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is an image of God's glory in saving his people, bringing justice to the Babylonians, yes, but also bringing justice to an unholy and evil world so that through that justice and through his people, the world might know him. The final fulfillment of that promise is ultimately an eternal one. It is a promise that will be made good upon Jesus's return. He has paid the price for that justice to be done on the cross. It's like a down payment. And he proved that he had done it when he rose again. And ultimately he will return to carry out that justice and completion. Why? So that the whole earth might be filled with his glory. For us, there is, I think, immense comfort in that, as well as a holy fear. Comfort because we can know that every injustice will be dealt with. That really is huge, right? Because if God's justice is just, then every single injustice of human history, every murder, every rape, every war crime, every theft, every lie, whether that is dealt with humanly or not, whether that is dealt with on this side of eternity or not, God's justice is just. That means that Stalin did not get away with it. Not really. And that means that any injustice that you have faced, if there is a specific person that you can think of or a group of people that have wronged you, they have not and they will not get away with it. Isn't there comfort in that? But I think there also ought to be a holy fear. For if we are honest, we know, don't we, that there are things that we have done, contributions to injustice that we have not paid for, that we could never pay for. And so if God's justice is just, then we too must face it. And this is the wonderful good news of the Christian gospel. For if we would be found in Christ, if we would trust in him, if we would have faith in him, then on that final day, we might be spared his justice. Not because he is not just, but because for those who trust in him, his justice has been done on the cross. And for us, that is a wonderful truth. For in it there is a forever hope. Not simply that we, though guilty, might be justified, but that we might live forever in a new and perfect world. A world that is filled with the glorious presence of the Lord. A world where we will know him perfectly. And knowing that changes everything today. Changes our desire to tell people about Jesus. If there really is no other way to this wonderful eternity to be made just, then wouldn't we want people to know about him? It changes how we use our money. Right? With our eyes fixed on eternity, material things just pale in comparison, don't they? 
It changes how we spend our time. It changes uh, about how we worry about things in this world. It is the real and only secret to true and lasting contentment and satisfaction in this life, just as we have sung together this morning. The forever hope of complete eternal justice, faith in the mess. So just as we finish, let me take you back to World War II. It's that strange in-between. D-Day has happened. You can look back at D-Day and say that the victory is sure, but you can also look forward to waiting patiently for the war to be over. And so too in life. We look back at the surprising justice of the cross. We know that victory has been secured. And though life feels like a real mess today, and though we, like Habakkuk, wait patiently in the watchtower, God's promise is of a complete justice. And in Christ, we wait, looking to an eternity with a sure hope in him. That's faith in the mess. We're going to sing together to close um, our service, uh, two songs, Ancient of Days and Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Just as Adam comes up, uh, let me pray before we sing together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the surprising justice of the cross. Lord, we confess together that we deserve your justice. And so we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the complete promise of eternal justice. Would you apply that promise uh, to our hearts by your Spirit? Allow us to be comforted by it and to find hope in it. In Jesus' name, amen.